Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where Emily and I talk about wine and classical music, hosted by aforementioned Emily Reese, radio host, and myself, Sommelier Joe Mott. Today we're going to deconstruct some of our favorites for you. In volume one, because there will be many more to come. We have lots of favorites as sort of a lost word with us, but yeah. we'll start with our top. True. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month on our Patreon page. You can, of course, do, you know, $5 a month, $10 a month, even, a you know, 50 bucks a month. Patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you'll also find a full playlist and the wines we're featuring today. Good day, Emily Reese. Happy day after really, really intense thunderstorms. Holy cow. Here in Minneapolis. They were amazing. We had quite a show. It was like very unusual types of storms we had here last night. And speaking of quite the show. Quite the show. Today is going to be quite the show because we're talking about some of Emily and I, our favorite Mm -hmm. things in or about classical music and wine. Yeah. I'm so excited. I... I mean, whenever anybody asks me what my favorite thing is, I immediately think of Beethoven, and then I go from there. But, uh, you know, I I talk about him a lot. So I just, I selected some really just miniature pieces that I absolutely adore and can listen to over and over and over again. So, Well, I was was kind of confronted with, am I going to choose a region or a grape or a couple specific wineries. And then I thought, well, I don't have one favorite grape and I don't have one favorite region within a country. And then I kind of started to get, I was going to go into like, I really love this type of wine. And then I was like, well, that's not true. Not all the time do I love that type. So then I I settled on, I thought, well, I've, I've traveled to about 14 or 16 plus countries for wine. And I thought about which country keeps me coming back. And there are a few of them but having been to almost every continent for wine, they don't obviously grow grapes on Antarctica, or else Correct. we'd be calling that. I settled on Spain. Well, actually, the Imbarian Peninsula, because I think Portugal has some of the most interesting wine and viticulture happening in the world. Mm-hmm. But the Imbarian Peninsula, um, so Spain and, and Portugal, respectively, I just think that how I wanted to focus on my portion today was I wanted to take... You know, there are over 70 different delimited regions. Obviously, I can't talk about all of them. And because they're a delimited region, we've mentioned before that they have like a rule book. And so sometimes those wines can be very deliciously boring. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of focus on regions that are hotspots for some fun natural winemaking that I really, really love. Great. I can't wait. And we're going to have two wines today? No. Oh. Why did I think we were having two wines today? Because maybe I mentioned it uh, in the last couple of days, like, we should have two on. Maybe I can't, won't be able to settle on just one, so maybe we'll need to have two. But okay. I. You did settle on one. I did. What is it? It's an Albarino. Yes. Which is crazy because Albarino is some of the most like makeup laden wines in all of Spain. Like, Tons of, a lot of people add potassium to it to lower the acidity and make mm. it kind of smoother. Weird. A lot of people are just pitching Pinot Grigio or Albarino yeasts. 
to kind yeah. of make it big boxy. Hmm. But I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about why that fits into a larger context. And right. Spain and historically, you know, Spain. I, another reason why I chose it is because it'd be easy to talk about Bordeaux and Burgundy, right? Like yeah. expensive regions, heralded regions. Sure. Even Germany at its time in like the 15, 1600s, 1700s, Thomas Jefferson was loving those wines, right? They were very famous. Um, and, you know, even though TJ and a lot of other connoisseurs since then have loved Spanish wines and Portuguese wines, they've never really, there are fine wines and now they, yes, they can compete with some of Bordeaux's best, but they've always kind of been like at the coattails of the natural wine movement, the Bordeaux-style wine movement, you know, modern wine. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just thought it would be a more fun way to dig in. Neat. Plus, I brought rocks from there. It's fun. That's amazing. How would you like to start today? Uh, it's been a bit for us since we started with wine, so I'd, I'd love to do that. Let's do it. What do you think of this Albarino at first sniff and taste? It smells very clean and minerally, and I love it. Love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very a very square smell, which isn't a bad thing at all. It's just mm. how it feels to to my nose, you know, angular. I can't wait to taste it. Can I taste it now? Yeah, cheers to scores <laughs> okay, and pours. Cheers. Oh, juicy, juicy. Some of these vineyards see the sea. Wow, salty. Yeah, minerally just bone dry, packed Ugh. with flavor. Oh. We're both just like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. Um, it's got plenty of acidity, supercharged. Mm -hmm. When you sent me the list today of your favorites deconstructed, yeah, I was like, whoa, really? Cool. <laughs> like these are <laughs> very unexpected, and I really? love it. Yeah. Oh, I want to know more about that. Well, because I thought it was going to be Beethoven, and I thought oh. it was going to be... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Bach, probably. Thank you, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so Remo, perhaps, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so I do, this was really difficult to know where, what kind of angle to take, and was I going to talk about a whole symphony, or was I going to talk about a favorite composer, you know. And I just, there, you know, I just chose three really short pieces by three different composers from three different eras. And so we can start chronologically with Francois Couperin who was a French composer in the Baroque era. Go figure, we'd start with Baroque, knowing Emily <laughs> Reese. Yeah, I mean... Loves her some harpsichord. I easily could, could have and should have chosen Renaissance music as, as well, but we're starting Baroque this time off. And this, uh, Francois Couperin, from a very famous French family of musicians, the Couperin family, and uh, Francois lived from 1668 to 1733. He's often known as the Great... Cooper and the Great, as in the most famous of them all, kind of. Uh, and in 1717, he included in a volume of keyboard music, he wrote several volumes of keyboard music, he wrote a little piece called The Mysterious Barricades. And it, nobody really exactly knows what he meant by that. French keyboard music often had descriptive titles. There were... Plenty of examples of it not, or it being called Rondo or something naming out after the form, but they also often had these little descriptive names. And with this one by Couperin, nobody's really 
sure why he called it the Mysterious Barricades. But um, it's just a lovely little harpsichord piece. So we're first going to hear it on harpsichord, which is, of course, what it was originally written for. But then we'll also hear a piano version because this one, it's just such a lovely little melody. So let's hear it, and then I'll talk about some of the cool things about it. Yeah. things about this little piece is that it's in a form called rondo r-o-n-d-o usually but also spelled french ways like r-o-n-d-e-a-u and things like that um, but a rondo means that that very first theme that we hear comes back over and over again with alternating sections between it so if we name that opening section that we heard that section we can call that a then something different happens. Then we go back to A. Then something different happens again that was different from the B part. So it goes A, B, A, C, A, D, A, and ends. Okay. If you follow along with the score, those it's usually marked where you go back to A. It shows in the oh, score. Oh, it does. Yeah, okay. so that's kind of fun if you want to read along that way. Otherwise, uh, let's keep listening, and we'll listen to a piano version now, and then we'll hear that A part come back uh, a couple different times. Cool. Yeah. Is this a different key? Well, remember, harpsichords are tuned differently. Yeah. So it's the same notes. They just sound okay. different. Gotcha. Yeah. So this would be that B section. Here's A again. So this is just like the beginning. This is the C section now. This is different than what we've heard. That's really quick. Yeah, really this is a pretty. fast tempo. Yeah. It's so pretty. Mm-hmm. I love this little piece. It's just a, It's one of Couperin's most famous, I mean, little tiny works. There are so many. He wrote so much keyboard music. He wrote the tiniest bit of organ music, but lots and lots of keyboard music. And it's a treasure trove. That's all there is. That's the Baroque era for you right there in a nutshell, just a treasure trove. Emily's <laughs> <laughs> eyebrows are like higher than her bangs right now. It's just, pretty great. I just love... I love that. Francois, 
Couperin. Well, let's just jump over the Pyrenees then, shall we? Let's please. <laughs> well, I wanted, I guess I, the easiest way to do this is to start where I usually touch down, which is in Madrid. I normally don't land in Barcelona or in the Basque country, two other major airports in Spain. Um, I tend to land in Madrid, and what's great is, you know, usually if you ask people that drink sometimes, you know, they'll drink Spanish wines, they'll be like, I, I like a Rioja, or I like, you know, they will say Alvarino or something, Cava. What most folks may not know that just are kind of drink everyday Spanish wine is that right now a couple of the hotbeds of natural wine is within an hour's drive of the capital, mm -hmm. if you don't have bad traffic. Um, just southwest of Madrid, we're in an area called the Gredos Mountain Range, the foothills of the Gredos Mountain Range. And we've featured a couple of producers from there on the show before. And the Gredos Mountain Range has been a hotbed for just wine. I mean, people have been making wine there for centuries, but natural wine is obviously, you know, in the last 10, 10, 15-ish years there and popular for the last few and in this region, we have some of the most beautiful Grenache. I mean, competing mm. with the best of southern France in the Rhone, like bigger, kind of hot, juicy wines with not red wines with not a lot of color. We have a really great grape called Albillo, which is there are a few different clones of Albillo, but this Spell is like that a, one A L B I L L O. Okay, like a plump, kind of juicy, ripe, very round white grape that's sometimes treated with some oak, sometimes not. And in this region, I mean, literally the Gredos mountain range looms over any time you're heading towards Madrid and you're within an hour, you can see the Gredos mountain range. I mean, they're huge, amazing to hike around, some amazing little rivers and streams and stuff, but a couple producers of note. So there's a guy, Fabio Bartolome, we've mentioned him before, from Vino Sambith. He's making some, some really tricked out, crazy, like an indigenous grape to the area called Malvar. He's doing some Airen. He's doing some Tempranillo, some Garnacha. And he shares a cellar with Daniel Ramos, who is an Australian Spaniard. And they couldn't have different styles of wine. <laughs> I mean, Daniels are wild, but they're a, a bit more restrained as well and like kind of, I guess, quote unquote, elegant. You know, he makes very terroir-specific grenaches for different soil types. You know, some are in schist, some are on granite. There is a producer called Cuatro Monos. They're making reds and whites and working with a really cool grape um, that they include in some of their blends called Morenillo. And yeah, just a fun place to hunt around for, for wines. You go just southeast of Madrid, so many people go, oh yeah, I studied in Toledo. Mm. The Goya Museum in Toledo. Don Quixote, ole, <laughs> gazpacho. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, on the outskirts of Toledo, we have a producer called Esencia Rural, a friend of mine, uh, Julian, who makes crazy wines that are fermented in amphora, some of them in amphora Neat. in his own vineyard, Neat. like submerged in the vineyard, subterranean. Huh. And then he's bottling them, obviously, without any sulfur, and he's doing some red wines. Some of these wines are inexpensive. Some of them are medium, but he never makes too expensive hmm. wine. You know, he wants them to be affordable. Yeah. So Julian has a friend, Samuel, who's in La Mancha. Now we're a little bit into the more of the heart of the meseta. But Samuel is making crazy wines on calcareous soils, clay soils, and he's doing 
tricked out Iden with a lot of skin contact. Iden is his calling card. That's what he makes the most of. He also works, strangely enough, with uh, Petit Verdot, Graciano, mm. some Syrah that was previously planted in, in his father's vineyard. So that's what he what he works with. I wanted to show you this, though. This is, so when, just to rewind, we were talking about the Gredos mountain range, yeah. the foothills of the Gredos. So we know that the two soils that are most famous there, there are several, but schist and granite are the most popular and these are granite soils and i mean it's just so crunchy you can see there's so crystally yeah yeah there's some quartz in there very compact and but chunky and it's cool when you have grenache especially planted to these soils when it's on schist it like tastes darker and more layered and when it's on granite it's kind of got like the texture is a little bit the fruit profile seems a little brighter, and then the palate's kind of a little chunkier, a little less fissured, almost like the soils themselves, yeah. which is like <laughs> incredible. So That's cent- amazing. So central Spain, a place where most people aren't thinking like, let's go get wine from around the Madrid area, but just a great, fun place to be drinking wine from right now. From central Spain, where are we going to jump off to? The classical Let's, era, perhaps? We're skipping the classical era. I'm so sorry. Yes. I okay, know. Well, I don't, hey, whatever. I mean, it's not my... It wasn't my intention. I chose a piece. It's just too long. And I, I really wanted to stick with these vignettes. So um, forgive me, beloved classical era. You know, I love me some romantic era. So it's, That's know. where we're headed, more or less. Okay. Uh, so let's firstly start with another FC. We started with Francois Couperin. Now we're going to Frederick Chopin who actually was Polish, not French, but French. In Seoul. Yeah. He's, he's, his body is buried in France. His heart is in Poland, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, but, really? Yeah. They took his heart out mm-hmm. and that brought was, it to Poland? He requested it that way. That's what he wanted. Weird. Yeah. Anyway, um, one of Chopin's most popular little pieces is this very simple little tune called Bursus. It's his Opus 57. It's in D-flat major, which basically is all the black keys on the piano, more or less. Badass. Yeah. yeah. And just to give people a time frame, uh, Chopin was born 1810 to 49, and he wrote this mm-hmm. later in his life, right? I mean, he yep. lived a short life anyway, but... He did live a short life. He wrote this in 1844. It was published the following year. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's called Bursus. That, ma- that means lullaby, and it's intended to have a very repetitive bass line, which this does. And it's completely beautiful. When he first sent the piece to the publisher, it was called, and forgive my French, but I would assume variants, variants, basically variants, not variations, variants. And it is basically a theme in variations, which we've talked about on this show. So it's a four-measure theme, and then there's 16 four-measure, basically, variations on that theme. The bass line repeats the same Almost the entire way through until the very end, it changes just a little. It's in 6-8, which is also very common for a bursus. That's what we call meter. Anyway. Who gave it this title then? I think he did. Okay. I think he did because okay. it was. I think it was published as bursus. Okay. But when he first sent it to, because he'd revised it a few times and, okay. and stuff like that. I understand. That. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this is the bursus in D-flat major by Frederick Chopin. Let's get us some black keys. Thank you. 
Really? This piece is so beautiful. So would this be considered a nocturne? No. Okay. Because uh-uh. it sounds like a... It's it sounds so similar. like that. It's very similar to a nocturne. So why... Yeah. Is it just because he didn't consider it a nocturne that it's not a nocturne? Well, sort of. But also nocturnes tend to be a little more harmonically complicated. There could be a lot more dissonance. There's really not a ton of dissonance in this piece. Mm-hmm. There is. We're hearing a lot of it right now as passing tones and things, and there's some really special dissonance in the very first variation. But it, it's 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 really supposed to basically kind of stay only one or two chords, which is what, what he's doing. He's going back and forth between one and five, one and five, yeah. one and five, in this rocking rhythm a la lullaby to help a child get to sleep. Which so. to me, the, that lullaby rocking mean is like I'm like oh so it's like a nocturne. <laughs> yeah, okay. they're really similar. Okay. And I mean, one of the things that's so similar about them is this this predominantly melodic right hand compared to the left hand. You know, the right hand is doing all this melody stuff, mm-hmm. and the left hand is just kind of hanging out. That's very similar to a nocturne as okay. well. So they they share a lot of characteristics. Okay, yeah, definitely interesting. kind of lullaby um yeah it'd be cool to see if someone like miles davis did it someone in the jazz realm or even you know someone that's living today like uh yeah marcellus the trombone player or excuse me well delphio's the trombone yeah, player thank you yeah. delphio like yeah. imagine him doing that with his uptown jazz orchestra that'd be <laughs> amazing or just having a, an acoustic bass playing that bass ostinato yeah. over and over again with just a beautiful little yeah that'd be amazing just idea out there for just, those of you during yeah. covid that are bored and are jazz musicians there you go just uh-huh. knock that one out for us would you guess <laughs> <laughs> we hop over the pyrenees again yes all right I might as well talk about what's in our glass and go to Galicia. In Galicia, uh, they are known for, I think, what was competing for one of the top wines with Rioja is a white wine called Ribeiro, which is usually usually a blend, kind of an insipid. Sometimes it's served in like it's bottled in this like tall blue bottle that makes it recognizable. Sometimes Albariños are done that way. Wines of northwestern Spain are almost always relegated to the white, light, cheap, and cheerful. And it's hard to make natural wine up in that area, especially in the vineyard with organic and biodynamic treatments because it's so wet. And so you're left with there's a ton of potential for rot. And so people need to be really, really careful about what treatments they're using when and to not have to use pesticides. Mm -hmm. And one of those producers we have in front of me, uh, Nanclares y Prieto. Uh, His name is Alberto Nanclares. He's originally from the Basque country. Him and his wife relocated to the Cambados village, which is almost the furthest west you can get in Galicia. I mean, literally, you can see the sea. So we'll just say it is one of the furthest west uh, villages in the area. And... It's part of the the Rias Baixas region, which is a land of a lot of bastardized white wine, 
swill in like silos. Not in this case. Mm. Alberto's a very small producer. He's got about two and a half hectares of that's throughout about 12 different parcels or mini fundios, as they call them in, in that region. And I think he started with some sort of like economics background. And he, then he was a grape grower, made good money grape growing and decided to like hang it up and make his own wine. And from the get-go, he wasn't always natural. He He liked to, you know, he would try pesticides and all that stuff. And with time, you know, you just start to realize what time it is, basically. Yeah. Like what, when you have more flavor, when you have more meaning, what tastes better, what feels better. And back when I visited him, it was probably 2013. He had just started out. He had maybe a couple vintages under his belt. And his wines, I remember them just being so full of flavor and so different than any other albarino I had had. Like salty because the vineyards are seeing the sea. A lot of them are. But rich and phenolically ripe. You know, he's not picking early and keeping it super lean and, you know, that you have to add potassium, like I mentioned, to get rid of mm. um, acid. So here we have a 12.9% alcohol wine, which for albarino, 13% is maybe a little higher. And this is his his cuvee called Dandelion, which is a compilation of all 12 plots, or, or give or take, depending on the vintage. And they are 30 to 60-year-old vines, granite and sandy soils, depending. And that's where you get that fluidity because of sand, but you also get kind of that crunchy nature I was talking about because of granite. And I mean, they aren't exactly like this because granite looks different in different places, but very similar. Yeah, I'm showing Emily the granite from Gredos area. Give it a smell. Oh, and when you smell this and then you smell like a different $12.99 Albarino next to it, the $12.99 ends up smelling like penicillin or like ibuprofen or tell, like mm. it just smells kind of plasticky and kind of fakey fruity. Interesting. Next to like this smells like grapes. Yeah. Pears. Mm. And almost, almost seawater. Like you can almost smell those bromophenols that we've talked about mm -hmm. on Scores and Pours in our Wines of the Sea episode. Yeah. You can definitely taste it saltiness, little little salty at the end. Oh my mm. gosh, it's so good! It's really good, and it's so acidic. Yeah, like you don't. Yeah, you would want to drink this wine now for sure, but you could yeah. drink it. You could definitely cellar this a few years without any Neat. concerns. Yeah, spend some time on the lees. He does this mostly in stainless steel, of course, to retain the, that fruitiness and the freshness in the region. There are also players like him that are doing things naturally. There's one called Constantino Sotelo, and I met David, who's one of the winemakers and the son of, of the couple that run run the bodega um, in Barcelona a couple, couple years ago, and I couldn't believe out of this tasting, this natural wine fair of like 200 producers, his was the one that, at the top 10 that I remembered mm. most. And his albarinos, he was doing them you know, he's from a similar area, so Cambado, very close to Cambados. But they were doing like, you know, some of them were in concrete. Some of them had floor like a sherry, but not fortified. Some were done in chestnut. Some of them were just done in stainless steel, fresh and fruity and light. And it's just like this whole new world of Alvarino was opened up by people like Alberto and then David. Another producer that I wanted to mention... He's in an area closer to Portugal called Valdeorras, although he doesn't use Valdeorras on his label. That's a region because he's breaking all kinds of rules, not subscribing to the rule book that Valdeorras says you have to make your wine this way to make a clean little cheap and cheerful. He's growing grapes like Doña Blanca, which have been up in that area for centuries. 
They think maybe due to the Arabs, they're not sure. Mm-hmm. Palomino as well, a very prominent grape in the south that has now taken root up there and does really well. He's doing Garnacha Tintoreda. He's doing Mencia. He's doing blends. He's doing single varietals. But most of his wines he's doing in old Tinaja or like Spanish Tinaja, a Spanish clay like Amphora vessel. Okay. He's doing Palomino with skin contact, just stuff you don't think about that's happening in Galicia. And it's just right now a hotbed of really fun things happening there, but you really have to know who's doing what because there's a lot of, as the Spanish would say, fingiendo as well. Like people kind of, they won't filter and they use native yeast, but they might sprinkle, sprinkle. Okay. Add a little acid here, add a little potassium there, add a little this, a little that, a little enzyme enzyme for flavor. Gotcha. You know. Just um, a little sneaky. Yeah, just a little sneaky. And I guess now that we're in Galicia, I'm going to take a quick sip. And then <laughs> I'm going to fly to the opposite end of the country. Excellent. In Catalonia, what's so great is you've got hundreds of natural wine producers in a, a few different subregions. And, you know, there, there are places like Clolentiscus, where we, we call him the bubble man. <laughs> if you don't know him... Manel is was the first person to make that I know of natural sparkling wine in Spain made from the champagne method, the traditional oh, method, that second fermentation in the bottle. And since then, you know, he's he makes still wines, he makes pet nats. His daughter has joined forces. And his daughter was not going to make wine. She was like, Well, I'll just write, you know, do this as part of a school project. Like I'll just take a year and make wine with my dad and work in the vineyard. And she ended up loving it. <laughs> And so now that's that's stuck, and she's just super into it. Nuria, so she makes great wine. Um, there's a guy by the name of Oriol Artigas, which if you fly into Barcelona and you're staying in the city center, you drive literally less than 20 minutes out of north Barcelona, and you're in this region called Aleia. And Aleia, there's Oriol just kicking it, just mm-hmm. making some awesome Panza Blanca is the name of the great varietal he works with. Mm. And he does a couple other varietals too, like Garnacha Blanca, et cetera. But his wines are pretty pretty soil specific. Like he'll make one wine that's this soil and one wine that's based on that soil. And they're just so vivid and so amazingly like natty French wine meets natty Spanish wine because he's very close to the border, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's super cool. Uh, we also have uh, a producer called Finca Pareda, with which if anybody knows the Finca Pareda wines, they'll probably have recognized uh, on Instagram the winemaker and owner, Ruben. Ruben is like the, oh, how can we say? He's the Jimmy Fallon. Nobody doesn't know who Ruben is because he's very active in the biodynamic you know, community, natural wine community. He's got a farm that they do cherries. They make olive oil, they make jam, they make honey, they make, you know, he's got like the whole thing going on. And he's very like, he's a showman, you know, he loves to talk about stuff. And his wines are incredible. Some of them are really tricked out. Some of them are a little bit more reserved and kind of easier, you know, kind of a little less expensive. But Ruben's wines are really, really fun. And they're, you know, you can get them almost anywhere in the country if you know where to look. Nice. And, uh, lastly, I'll talk about, I was going to talk about a few others, but I'll just talk about one. Uh, there's a guy, he makes, his wines are called Clot de les Soleres. And this guy is making wines, I, I visited him last year, he's making wines where he doesn't say that they're necessarily pet nats, bubbles, natural petillants in the bottle, right? He's like, nah, you know, it's not a pet nat. I'm like, well, dude, it, it went through first fermentation 
it finished in bottle yeah. and it has bubbles. Yeah. What <laughs> and he's like, well, no, you know, because I didn't, it, sometimes they don't have bubbles and sometimes they're less bubbles and sometimes they're more bubbles and it's kind of all over the place. Yeah. He's making the most vivid Macabeo, Charello, Chardonnay, Petnats. I, I'm just going to call him that, sorry. <laughs> and then he's he does Cabernet Sauvignon in stainless steel and an amphora. And if any of you think that amphora is not the vessel to make wines t- easier to drink sooner, mm. taste those wines. Interesting. Because the Cabernet done, I think, in, I think it is stainless, not wood, is like almost undrinkable right away. It's like mm. so tannic and just needs time to breathe. And the same wine from the same vintage that's done in the Cabernet Sauvignon in Amphora is just like got all kinds of huggies. Just give me a hug. <laughs> just, you know, I'm looking you in the eye and I'm just like, yeah. Like it's just so, so good. Nice. Um, so those are just four recommendations of producers that are, you know, you can find them around the country. You know, you have to look, but um, yeah. they're great places and a lot of to drink natural wine is really hard throughout Spain. Even in Madrid, there are a handful of bars, couple mm. maybe. In Barcelona, there are now a half dozen to a dozen natural wine bars. Mm. In Girona, which is further north, closer to France, you can go into places that have entire wine menus by the glass and by the bottle that are just Catalan wines and natural. Nice. <laughs> when I found those places, I was, you know, just like meandering through streets and be like, I'd love a glass of wine, but there's probably nothing good around here. And I walked into a place and I was like, what? Five hours later and like 200 euros down sharing with all the locals so that I could taste stuff. Uh, so good. Oh, I love Catalonia. That's amazing. A lot of my non-Catalan friends would probably not be happy with me saying that, but it's okay. I'm not going to get political on the show. So let's go. Good. All right. Let's music. Let's music. So the last selection for today comes from Igor Stravinsky. This is late romantic. I mean, it's just hard to really even classify that as this was romantic era, Uh, but we're gonna. And he was really young uh, when he wrote this piece as a composer. Stravinsky, born in 1882, died in 1971. He wrote this, the first version of this piece in 1907, and this is just a little, it's like a couple and a half, three minutes long, and it's called Pastoral, and it's just delightful. He originally wrote it for soprano voice and piano. That's what he wrote in 1907, and he dedicated it to his teacher's daughter. His teacher was just a little-known Russian composer named Nikolai (laughs) Rimsky-Korsakov. So uh, Nikolai's daughter is who Stravinsky uh, dedicated this to or wrote it for or something. And then uh, in 1923, he took that piece, he transcribed it for soprano, oboe, English horn, clarinet, and bassoon. Decade later, he did a version for violin and piano, and that also same year... He basically did what he did in 1923, but instead of soprano, he did violin. So violin, oboe, English horn, clarinet, and bassoon. Sorry. So that's all <laughs> that's to say. What we're gonna hear. That, that's all to say. There are a lot of versions of this. Uh, then in 1934, a super famous uh, conductor who was also an, an arranger. He took a lot of really famous music from the Baroque era and arranged it for orchestra. He did that with this piece. His name is Leopold Stokowski. You might know Leopold if you ever saw Fantasia when you were a child. Mm. He was the conductor in Fantasia. Oh, okay. 
and he transcribed it for violin, oboe, English horn, clarinet, bassoon, which Stravinsky had done, and a whole string section. So we're going to hear a version with soprano and all those instruments, and we'll also hear one without a singer. So one of the things that's so fun about this piece is that malleability, that it can be in all these different versions and still sound so delightful. So the first version we'll hear is with a, a singer, the famous Dame Joan Sutherland. She just died in 2010, Australian singer who forever was married to a conductor named Richard Bonning. Richard Bonning, also Australian and still around. He was born in 1930. So this is a version with Richard Bonning, Joan Sutherland, and this is the version that Stravinsky did for soprano, oboe, English horn, clarinet, and bassoon. All the woodwinds. Melodic, and I love our voice specifically with the oboe. It's almost like they're siblings yeah. or like cousins, you know? They like yeah. have a similar, yeah, the oboe's a little sharper, but they have a, I don't know, they just, they yeah. uh, pair with each other really well. Yeah, it's a beautiful combination. So let's hear another version. So this is going to have a violin player instead of the vocalist. And when Stravinsky wrote this piece, I mentioned he wrote it for voice and piano, but it was a song without words, he called initially. So he never did write lyrics for the voice. She's just awing as you're hearing. So in any event, that's another reason why it works so well to just have a violin play instead of a soprano sing, because mm -hmm. there's no words anyway. So it's not like the meaning is changing, yeah. right? So yeah, super cool. So let's hear a little bit of this version. This is the Leopold Stokowski version. I mean, okay. This one's... And to me, it's no wonder Stravinsky kept going back to it because it's so great. I mean, it's like he knew it was a beautiful little piece of music, so mm -hmm. why not keep reviving it and transcribing it for different settings so that he has more, more reason to play it and other people have more reason to play it. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Oh, that clarinet. okay, clarinet. Yeah. It's such a beautiful little piece. I like that it's very almost conversation sounding yes, it's like very. they are and we have that obviously all over the place in classical music but like this really just sounds like they're like talking and then yep. someone else is like wait, wait 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 and then they yeah that's cool I like so that great. a lot pastoral 
one of the things that makes it sound that way would be the abundance of the double reed instruments, the oboe, the, the uh, English horn, and the bassoon. Also, it's you hear the drone underneath, mm -hmm. the strings just hanging out on what's called tonic. That drone also very um, characteristic of what we would call a pastoral, like this piece. I'm just smelling the wine and walking in the Galician countryside. Yep. A little meadowy in the nose, we could almost say, if we wanted to. A little humid grass, a little sea spray. Mm, mm, mm. Yep. So those are some of my favorites. Beautiful music, for sure. Um, I just wanted to talk about two other regions that are kind of going towards the south of Spain. They're definitely, both of them are not, uh, but from the north, northeast, everything is south. Um, <laughs> yeah. One is if we go south a f you know, few hundred kilometers uh, from Barcelona, we'll say, we're going to get close to Valencia. And Valencia is well, it's probably about 500 kilometers away, but Valencia, the home of Paella, on the coast. If we go a little bit inland from the Mediterranean Sea, from the coast of Valencia, uh, so we're going in west, a little further inland, we are in the heart of, you know, there's a lot of bobal, big juicy, really dark grape varietal that is native to that area. And you have some albillo, you have some other native grapes, like t weird kind of esoterica, like tardana that nobody uses, and they just dump in with Chardonnay or Lord knows what else to make some sparkling wine. So cava, you can make cava in Valencia. There's a guy by the name of Mariano Taberner, and he owns a winery called Bodegas Cueva. Mariano's wines are effed up. <laughs> like they're some of the weirdest and awesomest wines I've had in Spain. Some of them are a little faulty, a little mouse mouse, but not all of them. Yeah. He ferments, he makes, ve the first time I met him, he's like, you want to taste my vegan sobrasada? And I was like, sobrasada, think of t emptying out chorizo from its casing and having it be a spread. So you can oh. kind of spread it on like peanut butter or like, like yeah. pate is a better example. It's not vegan. It's, it's kind of like that. Yeah, definitely not vegan. He's like, you want it to, it's fermented. I use seawater and I use cashews. And I was like, who the hell are you? And he's like, <laughs> and you want to taste, and this is long before we even got to taste wine. He's like, you want to taste my fish that's been marinating in this weird sauce for 10 years? And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah. And I'm going to get to taste this guy's wine. And I could tell you he's kind of feeling me out, right? Yeah. And then we finally get to taste his experiments in his wine. And like he's making a tardana that's direct to press. So it has no, like hardly any, it's just this weird kind of orangey little color. Hmm. He makes uh he makes bobal, he makes pet nats, he makes stuff that kind of tastes like sherry but isn't. His wines are really cool if you can find Bodegas Cueva wines. There's also one of my favorite producers in the area, one of my favorite producers in Spain. They're called Bodegas Pigar, P-I-G-A-R. And Juan Piqueras and his, his partner in crime and love, Susana, are making a lot of pet nats, bobal, tardana, chardonnay, they have some still bobal too, and their wines are just every bit as pretty, but kind of rugged is their as their countryside. You know, they're like we'll go check out a vineyard, and then we'll drive like twenty minutes, and there's another vineyard, and then driving like an hour, and there's another vineyard, and they've really started to rehab forgotten vines from people that are like old people that don't want to 
grow grapes anymore. And I'm like, listen, if you give me a little bit of the wine made from here, you can just have it or you can have it for not a lot of money or whatever. And they're just making like their bobal is like you pour it and you taste it. And I always, you know, swish around. My teeth are stained for like two days. <laughs> it's just got like so much flavor and so much tannin. Their winery, they just expanded and it's about five times the size of our studio. Mm. You know, it's very, very small, but they're, they're one to look out for as well. And now I'm just going to hop, skip and jump a six hour drive because I've done it before from Bodegas Pigar to Rueda. And Rueda is home to some of the most trashy wines in all of Spain, Verdejo, but some of the most spellbinding wines in all of Spain, Verdejo. But there are a couple producers. One is Ismael Gozalo, and his great friend in competition, Esmeralda Garcia. And both have very different philosophies for their wines. They're both quite terroir-driven. But Ismael's like skin contact, no skin contact, stainless steel, chestnut, old oak, you name it. He's kind of got, he's blending things. He's finding weird things. He's going and stealing grapes in the middle of the night and calling that like, illegal wine and we put pot and wine once, you know, just whatever. <laughs> and then you've got Esmeralda who's making wine the same way for every single parcel she makes, all in Spanish clay, no sulfur added, so that you can taste the difference in the four parcels that she makes clear as day. It's like almost like the difference between tasting Albarino next to Verdejo, next mm. to Garnacha Blanca. You'd be like, oh yeah, there's no question they're all different grapes. If you tasted all the parcels, like, no question, they're different wines, all on sandy soils, but different versions thereof. Mm. And that's a really cool way to, if you can find those wines, because they're very hard to find, both of them make next to nothing, to taste them side by side and be like, well, this is two people that, like, labor of love, their wines couldn't be more different, yet they're the same grape. And... Yeah, Spain is just a place that has captured my heart for wine for probably the last 15 plus years. And I just think there's so much happening there. And in a world of like really industrial wines where once in a while, I'll drink a Chacolí. Why not? Hmm. Chacolí is a wine from the north that's extremely industrial. Hmm. In the end, I, the natural wines coming out of Spain are every bit as good as the natural wines coming out of Italy or out of... France, mm -hmm. out of California. Mm -hmm. So check them out. Great. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Emily Reese and Jill Mott. You can find links and more information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours we're also on instagram at scores and pours and we're working on the reddit thing so we'll be there soon consider supporting the musicians that we feature today by buying their music edited by emily reese and jill mott our producer is sam keenan scores and pours is a production of june media incorporated 